0: Resorts, homes and a newly built hospital have been washed away.
1: No electricity, nothing whatsoever.
2: We need to be prepared for the future.
0: I'm just holding on for dear life here. This isn't fun.
1: Pacific prepared.
3: Pacific prepared.
1: Plan this time before disaster strike. Every natural disaster gets worse.
3: What happens when something goes wrong and how do they respond to it?
1: And make sure everyone's safety comes first. Save what for dream you must ready
3: clearing roads restoring critical infrastructure
0: eventually i know it's going to hit it's only a matter of time
3: helping your community
1: helping your family
2: helping you pacific prepared pacific prepared pacific prepared,
1: pacific prepared.
4: Hello and welcome to Pacific Prepared, I'm Fred Hooper. We've got a great team of reporters who are on the ground chatting to you, and the stories we bring you could help you, your family and your community prepare for natural disasters. The weather and how it affects you is already part of your life, so let's keep talking about being prepared. On today's show, a group of women in Papua New Guinea are part of a drive to save mangrove vegetation, and it's all linked back to climate change. And what role does the media play when it comes to disaster preparedness? this was discussed at the Disaster Risk Reduction Conference recently. Also, still on reporting on the climate, we'll hear from a Samoan journalist who's made it her work to get everyone thinking about climate change in the Pacific. That's all coming up. This is Pacific Prepared.
3: People's lives have been affected by disaster.
1: Know what to do.
3: Know what to do.
1: Know what to do. do.
3: Clearing roads, restoring critical infrastructure all the signs are coming so we have to prepare
1: be prepared
3: pacific
4: prepared coastlines across the pacific are some of the most iconic in the world white sand clear blue waters but they're also pretty vulnerable due mainly to climate change but locals in the pacific are trying to help there's a new NGO, or non-government organisation, that's hoping to encourage women to take ownership of their coastlines in Papua New Guinea. Pacific Prepared reporter Diane Waketsi has this story.
1: Villages in Borgia Medellin province of Papua New Guinea, have embarked on a major journey to save their mangrove vegetation along its coast after seeing the effects of climate change. Environmentalist and founder of newly established local NGO Peter Moikia, says that he established Mary Lookout Environment Network or Women Looking After the Environment Network to empower women in his village and clan. The aim of this NGO is to get women involved in taking care of the environment, planting mangroves and restoring the coastlines in the Bogia area. He said culturally women in his community had no voice, no say in decision-making, But through this local NGO, women have started to speak up.
3: I came up with this idea on why not, you know, try to empower women and, you know, start this group. So I met with some of the women that they already work, they got experience with other, you know, NGOs and working as volunteers in the the community level. So I said, we should try to come together and form a group. And I said, I want to give a name that you know, women like Mary Power, uh women have to have a voice in the decent making on natural resource management, either it's marine or terrestrial. We have to do something now in Medell-E. I came up with this idea so I said why not I give this name, Mary Lucarty Member Network.
1: He says while funding to keep the local NGO afloat has been hard to come by these women groups set on saving the environment still have hope for the 15 villages and 19 wards who are committed to this project. While climate change is a major issue for island nations, more needs to be done at the community and district levels.
3: You know, we can all be up in cities, towns and everywhere talking about climate change, talking about biodiversity conservation. But in reality, I know that. Yes, we can talk, talk about it in big workshops, but we don't really go down to the community level or world level or LSD level or district to support the actual thing happening on the ground. So I was, you know, trying to say it out in public that it's time now that we should go back to the ground and see who are doing some things on the ground on this program of biodiversity conservation and climate sensitivity. We can just talk on the high level and leave it there. No. It's time to go back. Look back. Because when we talk and government makes a decision on what we are doing, but we still are you know, holding workshops in uh, places like uh, Port Morsi or in resort or wherever, in town. But actual thing is not happening on the ground. That's what I saw. So that, that is why I'm trying to stay my experience on the ground that it's good time now for all the government, levels of government, and also the private sectors and the NGO partners, like international NGOs, and also donors to look on why, what we are community-based organizations or local NGOs doing on the ground at this moment. When we when want to work with community-based organizations, we have to look at, you know, big data. It's like we can build capacity and, uh, and then support with some small funding that, the, the, the actual previous is working, uh, doing the work on the
1: ground. And that was Peter Moikia, founder of Mary Lookout Team Environment Network. Mr. Moikia says that while preparing for disasters is a big part of his NGO's focus, helping communities to fight climate change by planting more mangroves and building sand walls to stop sand erosions on the coast are some successful stories so far.
3: The organization has the idea of, uh, you know, establishing uh, conservation or uh, locally managed marine areas. So everyone should participate and make decisions on how they can, you know, they can manage instead of we use, you know, just I mean, so we need to find some ways to, you know, set up locally managed marine areas or conservation areas in terrestrial or forest or something like that. So, this will help the people to think critically on how to manage the resource and how to help to protect the disaster taking place. So that's what I thought. But one good example I made is, you know, it is in the village level, you can't find money everywhere, so you have get the proper bags and sand bags and fill the sand and start to, you know, put it across the, the area that uh, sea, sea, sea level rise is washing away the solar. And that's one technique that I think is really, really helpful.
1: And that is Peter Moikia, founder of Mary Lookout Team Environment Network.
4: Papua New Guinea-based Pacific Prepared reporter Diane Waketsi with that story.
1: What's your plan? Are you ready
2: to leave your home? Plan now before disaster strikes. Pacific Prepared. Risk communication does not work if there is no trust.
4: This is Mami Mizatori. She works in disaster risk reduction for the United Nations. This was part of a disaster risk reduction conference in Brisbane recently. Obviously, there was a lot of conversation about planning for disasters, but also what role the media plays in that. Fijian Broadcasting Corporation journalist Josiah Nanunga was at the conference, again here, speaking with Mami Mizatori.
2: The Sendai Framework says that tackling this enormous agenda of disaster risk reduction is a whole of society endeavor. And in this, the role of media, media as a crucial stakeholder is explicitly written into the Sendai framework. Now, what do we need the media to do even more? Of course, media will report on the devastating disasters and how response is needed. But we need to see the media, and we are seeing it, communicate more the importance on prevention, that we need to work on disaster risk reduction, prevention, building resilience before disasters strike us and how it can be done. Now, we are working with Asia ABU and WBU on how we can train, if you will, build the capacity of the journalists in this area. And the reason why it is so important for the media journalists, national broadcasting unions to work on this is because you are trusted. You are trusted by the people who are listening to your information. Risk communication does not work if there is no trust. Only when the people who are listening to your information trust you, then they will listen to you. And in this vein, early warning system that I just mentioned, media has an enormous role to play here. In many countries, it is the national broadcasting unions, the televisions, the radios, which which give these early warnings. And again, here, if there is no trust in the information that you are giving them, but also importantly, if your information is not based on the impact that this certain hazard, whether it's a storm or whether it's an uh, earthquake, um, is going to be um, giving you, then they will not, people will not take early action. And th- this is another very important role of the media. And finally, for early warning to be, to be followed by early action again, we would really like to encourage the media to talk about the importance of early action um, always before disaster strikes. So, in a nutshell, you have a tremendously important role to play. I see that there is much more uh, now being done by the media to forward the agenda of prevention And that's why I'm always delighted to sit with you, the media, to talk about these issues. So definitely there is a strong recognition globally that in terms of disaster risk reduction, in terms of climate action, we need to focus on all member states, but particularly on the more vulnerable member states, which are the small island-developing states, which are the least developing countries and which are the landlocked developing countries. I'm not sure whether it's really, really short term, but what is really urgent is to build the resilience of the people, of the communities. And in order to do this, we need to invest more in the people because as you say, when so many hazards are coming one after another, the ability to bounce back is limited. And at one point, people may not be able to bounce back anymore. And even if their lives are saved by early warning system, their livelihoods may be deeply eroded. So we need to invest in this part, and that's the vulnerability part we are talking about. We need to invest in people so that they they have resilience in themselves, in, in where they live, in the, in the jobs that they have, um, so that they don't have to go back to square one each time. It's not a short-term solution, I know, but it's about investing in people now. And this is true uh, everywhere, Uh, not only in developing countries, more so, but even developed countries. We have seen that with COVID-19, inequality really um, increases the risk of people being hit by disasters, risks and disasters. So I would say that, you know, um, really doubling down on our efforts to work on vulnerability is not the short term, but what we urgently need to do.
4: Mami Mizatori, who works in disaster risk reduction with the United Nations. And thank you to Josina Nunga from FBC for that audio. The time to prepare is now, not right before an emergency.
1: No electricity nothing whatsoever. You are listening to Pacific Prepared.
4: Imagine you're in a cyclone. You're only young, maybe 10 years old. Your house is shaking and things are rattling around you. And of course, you're terrified. And then one of your family members is lifted up by the wind and clinging to a piece of your home. Imagine how that might change the way that you felt about natural disasters. This is exactly what happened to Lungi Poiva, Sherelle Jackson. She had this moment, and she recalls it now as an adult, and how it shaped her whole career as a journalist in the Pacific.
0: I think there's many moments, right? Um, but an earlier memory, always I always go back to the cyclones I experienced as a child, um, and just seeing the devastation around me, and realizing that that was a constant, and that You know, our people were going to have to just live with that devastation. Um, but really when I became editor of Newsline newspaper, uh, and the IPCC released its first uh, chapter on small island developing states, and that's really when it hit home that this was serious. Because once an uh, you know a climate body makes a statement and provides the scientific evidence, it's like well, actually that's non-negotiable. And that really was for me the the moment where I realized that this is very serious, um, and we have to report on it if we're going to be fair to to the issues that impact our people.
4: And and was it that that sort of drove you into journalism, or was that something that you were going to do anyway, regardless of? what your experience was with cyclones and i think you you spoke about your uncle i believe it was who was sort of dangling in the air hanging onto a roof <laughs> and you're laughing to give her that story now yeah. <laughs> Did, did that lead you into journalism though? Or were you going down the journalism road already and that sort of solidified it for you?
0: Mm, so there's a combination of factors there. Um, I was brought up by an Indigenous conservation leader, my mom, High Chief Fiti Moilangi Jackson. So her influence on my earlier life uh, in terms of conservation and the value of land to our culture, value of culture to the environment. So that seed was already planted in terms of the value of environment to my life. And everything around me. Um, I chose journalism because I'm from the outside island of Savai, and I realized quite early on in primary school that we, there was no coverage of the island I'm from. Um, there were no journalists reporting from what was happening in Saba'i, uh, you know, there was news um, and there were people there, including myself, and uh, the national media was not reporting on it. So my motivation to become a journalist was really to tell the stories of the island I'm from, which is Saba'i, and to truly reflect that indeed uh, our group of islands um, should be fairly covered. So the initial motivation for going into journalism is fair coverage. Um And then as a result of my upbringing, I then naturally went into environmental journalism, which then morphed into climate journalism once that became quite obvious that that was the story that's going to lead the entire, you know, my entire journalism career.
4: The issue of of climate change isn't obviously new to the Pacific, but and it's been known for, for years. And as a journalist, how do you kind of pull in audiences outside the Pacific and also help them understand how serious things are at the moment and have been for years actually.
0: So when I started out covering climate my focus was on raising the awareness of the impacts of climate change locally among our people using local languages um, and that really made a difference in, in the awareness. And I was fortunate to receive an award from our government recognizing that work. So once I felt like I did my part in, in informing local communities, I then transitioned to, uh, elevating the way, the visibility of the impact of the climate crisis on our islands, on Samoa, on atoll nations. Uh, and you know, it hasn't been an easy journey because you not only have to tell of the impacts and tell the story of how our people have been suffering and that this is not a new issue for Pacific Islands but you also have to orientate international audiences to the fact that islands do exist and there's like legitimate cultures, languages and diverse you know communities of people in this region that is often uh, sidelined in international coverage but also sensationalized and idealized in international coverage
4: there's a whole number of different factors that come into play when it comes to climate change and why people can't simply relocate, for example, as as one example. But how do you kind of explain that to an audience who doesn't have that cultural knowledge in their own culture at all? It doesn't exist.
0: Yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> it's like, um, how should I say? It's, it's very. It, it was very difficult to begin with to kind of... Uh, set a baseline of understanding for myself um, in terms of where do I set the baseline uh, how do I perceive the international audience understanding of the Pacific, you know, do we start from like zero or do we say hey they have a basic understanding of where we're from and then go from there I grew up in a uh, hotel, so a small hotel on the island of Savai, my parents owned it and so i felt like i had this window into um uh international audiences via the tourists that visited our island right. so then by way of these conversations growing up i kind of had an understanding of the
4: ignorance that was out there um so you would help- talk to guests who were coming to your hotel and and you would understand what they knew about the pacific or what they didn't know yes maybe. and
0: and what i what I was aware of as a very, at a very early age is that the people who did make it to Samoa at the time, this is like 70s, 80s, right? These were people who actually made an effort, understood, and wanted to learn about Samoa and the Pacific. That meant that everyone else who didn't make it there, who didn't make the effort, had zero understanding. So I used that kind of metric, uh, you know, where I was reporting to the non-specialist international audience to orientate the way that I covered uh, the Pacific. And it's worked very well for me. Um, and also using social media to kind of track what worked and what didn't work in the way that I... Uh, explained um, the Pacific really did help me in, in strengthening my craft in terms of reporting on the Pacific.
4: An interesting way to get into it, far right. out, living in a hotel, yeah, <laughs> amazing. <laughs> we hear about rising sea levels and floods and storms. To relocate, it's, it seems like a really obvious answer, but it's not when you're from the Pacific, though.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's it's not it's not a simple answer you know a someone who lives in a city can move apartments right they have no particular ties to that building they may have but it's easy to find another building um for people in samoa as an example you grow up in customary land um you bury the umbilical cord of your baby on that land, your own, you know, umbilical cord is, is buried there. So you're very much tied to that piece of land. Generations of families stay on the same piece of land. We bury our elders there. You bury yourself there. So it's not something that you can just up and leave. And even when communities travel, when people move overseas, they still have that land to come back to. It will always be a part of them. So no, it's not an easy thing to just stand up and leave because you can't pack the bones of your ancestors into a suitcase. And then you cannot relocate burial grounds that easily because some of those bones have become part of the land and you can't move them, but you have to stay with them.
4: This is Lange Poiva Cheryl Jackson a Samoan journalist who has spent a large part of her career reporting on climate-related issues across the Pacific. What are some of the, the protocols around journalism in, in the Pacific that foreign journalists just don't simply understand?
0: Well, one, for one, you can't stand while talking to a chief, right? Um, your head cannot be above them. There's so many little nuances like that where it can really make a difference in the way that you do the interview if you understand the way that we interact locally. Um, asking permission before entering a house, not shoving a mic in the face of a leader uh, or of a chief, um, not eating in their prisons in certain cases. So there's a lot of these nuances um, that we observe culturally that come naturally to us that a foreign correspondent, you know, doesn't necessarily have. Um, fortunately, over the years with the model that we've used is uh, foreign correspondents have used stringers to kind of bridge that cultural divide. Um, but it's also, as a stringer in the past myself, it's been very embarrassing uh, because no matter how much you try to observe, uh, to make sure that your foreign correspondent observes cultural protocol, they still break it. Um, and that reflects on you and not them. Um, and it does jeopardize the industry if the foreign correspondent screws up a relationship you know, with a leader and then that impacts the way that local journalists interact with that particular leader. Mm. So it does have far reaching impacts, um not just culturally but also in the industry locally. As an Australian journalist, uh I'm yeah, sure far, you know. speak freely, yeah. <laughs> so it's all about the deadline, right? Um and you have to deliver a story and in the pursuit of that deadline and that story, you know, um a lot is disregarded like you just want the sound bites you just want the quotes and you forget that you still have to like we still do the same thing as local journalists but we have to take steps to get there Um, and those steps include the cultural nuances and the cultural protocol
4: how do you kind of change the narrative from doom and gloom in the pacific in terms of climate change and what's happening at the moment to sort of more solutions based journalism and what's being done to I guess, mitigate what is happening in climate change? How do you try to change that narrative around a little bit so that it's not so, you know, doom and gloom?
0: Mm, I mean, that's, uh, that's you know, we, we, can, we need to crack that code, right? <laughs> the thing is, locally, you'll see uh, very hopeful stories being covered, stories of resilience, stories of preparedness, stories of uh, traditional knowledge and... Uh, locally based solutions to climate change. I feel like local media around the Pacific are doing that really well because they are there. Local media are speaking to communities, you know, boots on the ground, so to speak. Um, the issue is international media having to do the same. And how I've tried to do that is really go back to, to the voices on the ground. And I feel like we did do that in an impossible choice, was really listen to the voices from the ground talk to them and, you know, get from them what was um, the changes that they were making. Um, but I think solutions-oriented climate journalism is really the way forward. And using international publications and international experts to inform the story angles on the ground on how we can really make shifts locally is one way to go. Um, so be informed by international experts and the science, and then back that up with locally implemented solutions.
4: Lungi Poiva Sherelle Jackson, a journalist who has spent a large part of her career reporting on climate issues across the Pacific, and the whole time trying to present that to an audience that's very far removed from the Pacific. Pacific Prepared is supported by the Pacific Media Assistance Scheme with funding from the Australian Government's Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. Any views expressed do not necessarily represent those of PACMAS or the Australian Government. It's produced and distributed in partnership with Radio Australia and networks across the Pacific, including Radio New Zealand Pacific, NBC Papua New Guinea, Palau Wave Radio, Capital FM 107 Vanuatu, FBC Fiji, Samoa National Radio 2AP, SIBC, Solomon Island Broadcasting Corporation and TBC Tonga. If your organisation is working in disaster preparedness or resilience, keep us informed so that we can keep everybody informed. Maybe you've got a story idea, a personal experience to share, a topic that we should cover, or someone you think we should meet. The easiest way to get in touch is to search for Pacific Prepared and then hit the Contact Us button. You can also listen back to the program. Just type Pacific Prepared into your search engine and you'll find us. Have conversations about disasters. What would you do and how will you prepare? We're trying to help you make the next disaster easier for you and your family. My name's Fred Hooper. Please share any information you've learned today and stay safe. This has been Pacific Prepared.